Welcome to Her Half of History. My name is Lori. The current series is A Slave, But Now I'm Free, and this is episode 4.4, Catalina, a Native American Slave in Spain. African-American slavery looms large in American history and in American culture and political battles. It looms so large that the conversation often doesn't include any mention of the Native Americans and what happened to them. Their story is sometimes called the other slavery. Just quickly, a word about the terminology. My major source for today uses the term Indian rather than Native American, so I'm going to follow his lead and use that term as well from here on out. The first thing you need to know about the other slavery is that it was illegal, totally illegal, almost from the word go, and that illegality was almost universally ignored by everyone, from the Spanish to the Portuguese to the Anglos to many, many Indian tribes themselves. That slavery existed in the Americas prior to European conquest is perfectly clear. The first European to get involved was Senor Columbus himself. His first voyage brought back a couple dozen Indians his men had captured. Subsequent trips brought back more. Slaving had not been the original aim of the exploration, but when it became clear that the silks and spices Columbus had promised were not to be found in the Caribbean, slaves were the only way to make the thing commercially viable. Columbus himself inaugurated the Middle Passage, which meant the slaving ships that would later cross from Africa to the Americas, complete with overcrowding, inadequate food, inadequate medical care, and a very high mortality rate. In Columbus's version, the ships sailed east, not west, and the holds were full of Indians rather than Africans. The Spanish version also favored women and children over men, since they were intended for domestic service rather than plantation or mine labor. But in all other respects, it was the same horrific story. In the first half of the 1500s, some 2,500 slaves were sent to Spain from the Caribbean and the coasts of Venezuela, Mexico, and Florida. What was different was their legal status when they got there. Ferdinand and Isabella opposed native enslavement, and they made it illegal to sell the Indians in Spain four days after the first ship's arrival. This was not because they were opposed to slavery in general. Spain was well acquainted with slavery, but they followed a protocol about who could be enslaved. They had to be non-Christian enemies taken in just wars formally declared by popes or kings. Muslim jihadists had been driven out of Spain after centuries of fighting, so Muslim slaves were A-OK. But not even the Spanish crown could delude themselves into claiming that the Indians of the Caribbean were enemies waging an offensive war against Spain. Clearly, they were not. Therefore, not enslavable. The royal decrees did not seem to stop the boats from coming, though, causing Isabella to exclaim waspishly, Who is this Columbus who dares give out my vassals as slaves? No doubt the Indians could have objected to being vassals, too, but at least she didn't want them to be slaves. Initially, there were some loopholes. Cannibals could be enslaved, for example. But in 1542, the Spanish crown closed those loopholes, too. No native slaves, not even cannibals. But where prophets are concerned, laws are often ignored. None of these Indians left us a memoir, sadly, but the court records of Seville can tell us the outlines of their stories, because these slaves had access to something that most slaves in history did not, a court system that knew their condition was illegal. They could sue. 
From those court records, we get the story of Beatrice, who, so far as I can tell, has not been dignified with a last name. She was only 14 years old when she arrived in Spain, which you might think would classify her as one of the children on the ship, but she already had Simon, a baby boy, with her. In 1534, she and her son were given to Juan Cancino of the town of Carmona as part of his wife's dowry. I have no details about the early years of their enslavement, but one can imagine. Endless household chores with only food and clothing as pay. Quite possibly verbal and physical mistreatment. During her court appearance later, Beatrice was described as short, thin, and missing an upper tooth. We can only speculate about how she lost the tooth. The first trouble recorded is that Cancino sold Simone away, claiming that the boy had stolen from him. Beatrice had four more children. No word on who the father or fathers were. All four children were kept as slaves. One of these second-generation slaves was a girl named Catalina. In 1556, she was 17 years old and not afraid. She repeatedly ran away and tried to convince the others to come with her. Cancino was enraged. He sent her to the butcher's shop and had her face branded with a red-hot iron. This didn't stop Catalina. She and Beatrice began speaking out. They were Indias, they said, and Indias had a right to freedom. They had heard some Indians in Seville had sued for their freedom and won. They were right. It was 1556, after all. The new laws had closed all the loopholes 14 years earlier. And that's assuming that Beatrice ever fell into any of the loopholes anyway, which is more than likely not true. She had been a slave for most of her life. The crown had granted her the right to freedom, but much like the slaves of Juneteenth in the United States, nobody had bothered to tell her. It is possible that mother and daughter did more than just speak out. Cancino later said on the record that Catalina in particular was always trying to escape and had stolen a money purse, a silver chain, jewels, cheese, wool, wine, and whatever else she and her mother could get. Beatrice is not accused of having run away until 1558. She was 38 years old and had lived as a slave in Cancino's house for 24 of those years. She left her children behind and went to Seville, where she met Francisco Sarmiento, the designated official to help the Indians. For five months, Beatrice and Sarmiento prepared her case, and then Juan Cancino was summoned to Seville to answer criminal charges. According to the law, what Beatrice had to do was prove that she was from the Spanish Indies, which meant absolutely all of Spain's overseas colonies. If she could do that, she was free, and so were her children. The judges immediately admitted that she looked like someone from the Indies, but they also asked her if she could speak Nahuatl, and she said no. Nahuatl is the language of the Aztecs and the Toltecs. Certainly, it was the most important language of pre-conquest Mexico, but it was never at any point the only language of Mexico. Furthermore, it was also true that like many other Indian slaves, she had been taken from her homeland while very young. How much would she remember? The witnesses she presented were all from Cancino's neighborhood, a widow, a butcher's wife, a shoemaker. All of them agreed that Beatrice spoke a strange language and said she was an Indian from Mexico. Her most important witness was a blind Indian named Juan Vasquez, who said he had known her for 13 years, but they were both from Malacata in Mexico and had spoken the language of Malacata together. However, there was still the defense to hear, 
and Cantino took the most common defense available to those accused of illegally holding Indian slaves. He claimed that Beatrice wasn't Mexican at all. No, she was the daughter of a Moor, which meant someone from northern or western Africa, that she had said so many times. It was perfectly legal to hold Moors as slaves. They were infidels and had only recently been driven out of Spain, which made them enemies of a just war. The judges returned their attention to Beatrice for more questions. They asked her about the fabrics that were made in her country. They asked very leading questions like, were there camels in her country, or elephants, tigers, lions? What about spices? Did she eat ginger, pepper, cinnamon, or cloves? They knew, of course, that such things did not exist in the Spanish Indies. They did exist in Africa. Therefore, if she said yes, then she was obviously a liar and a legal slave. But for someone taken as a child, uneducated and traumatized, what did she know about her homeland? Very possibly not much. Cancino also objected to the name Malacata. He said there was no such place. Now, I looked up Malacata, and my best guess is that it means Malacatan, which is in present-day Guatemala, but shares a border with modern-day Mexico. The only downside to my theory is that it is on the Pacific coast, not the Caribbean coast, but that's not proof against it. The Aztec ruler Ahuizotl had expanded his empire south and down into the western part of present-day Guatemala, right where Malacatan is. She could easily have been a captive shipped north into the empire Cortes had already devastated and then east to the ports. Even today, about 30% of the people in the area around Malacatan are Mayan, the most spoken language other than Spanish is Mam, a Mayan language which bears absolutely no relation to Nahuatl. But Cancino's claim was that Beatriz was really from Malagueta, which was a coast of Africa under Portuguese control, and there was no law against holding slaves from Portuguese colonies. Even some of the witnesses on Beatriz's side confused the issue, with at least one claim that she was from Puerto Rico and another that she was from Peru. Both would have made her enslavement illegal, but the contradictions certainly looked like an ill-planned lie. Beatrice lost her case. We have no record of how Cancino treated her on her return to slavery. I seriously doubt that it was pretty. She was to stay a slave for the rest of her life. But Catalina wasn't done. In 1572, 13 years later, she sued Cancino again. Her mother was dead, but now she had a daughter of her own to protect. Catalina began her suit by maligning her mother, explaining to the court that her mother was too uneducated and too drunk to explain herself or present her case clearly. Beatrice was undoubtedly uneducated, which was not her fault. Whether she was also alcoholic, I don't know, but I wouldn't blame her. What other escape did she have? Having explained why the case was not satisfactorily resolved 13 years earlier, Catalina continued her case with a long list of witnesses, and she knew in advance that all of their stories matched. Every single one of them insisted that Beatrice was from Mexico. Since Cancino could no longer exploit the inconsistent testimonies, he took a different approach. He attacked the witnesses, accusing them of terrible things, such as not having pure Spanish blood, or having no fixed opinions, or just generally being untrustworthy. This was obviously racist, but that wasn't a dirty word then. The fact was that decades had passed since Beatrice arrived in Spain and memories had faded. Absolute irrefutable proof was impossible. 
There weren't any documents. There was only the word of aging, lower-class people. Catalina lost her case. The court went so far as to admonish Cancino to treat his slaves well, but no further. So you might be wondering what Catalina is doing in this series on women who escaped slavery. She is here because two years later, the Spanish Council of the Indies reviewed the case and overturned the ruling, thus ending 40 years and three generations of slavery that had never been legal in the first place. Catalina and all her family were free. I am sorry to say that I have no further information about Catalina and her family, where they went, what they did, or how they supported themselves in their new freedom. All of that is missing because it wasn't relevant to the court case, which is the only record we have. About Indian slavery in general, more is known. Despite the disappointing results for Beatrice, in fact, the Spanish courts really were trying to free the Indian slaves. One historical analysis of the court records in the 16th century found that 95% of the completed cases actually did result in the Indians going free. Now, don't be misled by that. Not all Indians were able to bring their cases to court, and not all cases in the court were completed, but even so, it shows that it was possible for an Indian to win in court. With numbers and laws like that, Indian enslavement in Spain was bound to peter out, and it did. Word spread among Indian slaves that the law was on their side. More sued for their freedom, and even if they did not, their owners could not sell them at full value since everyone knew it was illegal. As a result, as a result, the financial incentives were not there. That chapter of the Middle Passage died out, and by the early 17th century, Indian slavery in Spain was gone. Note that I said Indian slavery was gone in Spain. African slavery, and even enslavement of others from farther afield, was a different story altogether. One interesting wrinkle in the story of freeing the Indian slaves in Spain is what it did to the non-Indian slaves. Their freedom was not to be had for a lawsuit. Cancino tried to claim that Beatrice was really from Africa, not the Americas. While it seems that this was a lie in Beatrice's case, telling the lie the other way around held obvious advantages for slaves who really were of African descent. One slave who tried was named Violante. In 1552, while waiting to be sold, she screamed to the crowd that no one should buy her. She was a thief, and not only that, it was illegal to buy her because she was India. The subsequent lawsuit is, if possible, even more heartrending than Beatrice's. Violante adopted the identity of a dead India woman, and in the process, she didn't just change her name and comb her hair differently. She actually had herself branded under the chin to serve as proof of identity, because that type of brand was done only in the New World. Meanwhile, the case dragged on as she was held in chains and beaten for months. In the end, the fight was beaten out of her, until she admitted she had made the whole thing up. And while in modern times we wouldn't consider confession under torture to be proof of anything except torture, the fact is that the testimony of the witnesses who should have known was very damning. She wasn't in India. She was exactly what her master said she was. And the courts held no escape for her. Indian slavery in the Spanish colonies, as opposed to Spain itself, is also a different story. It was just as illegal to hold Indians in slavery there, but they were a long way away, and royalty is more and more ignorable the farther away you get. There is no doubt that the slavery continued on a large scale all the way through the colonies. At best, you got governors who looked the other way. At worst, 
they were enthusiastic participants. In New Mexico, the collusion was so blatant that in the 1650s and 1660s, slaves were actually transported south to the silver mines in the royal carriages themselves, the ones meant to supply New Mexico with food and manufactured goods. While virtually all tribes suffered from slavery, it is also true that many tribes found that their own best means of support was to become slavers themselves. Comanches, Apaches, Navajos, Utes, and many others were regularly both predators and prey. And when Anglo settlers came in, they also participated in a system of enslavement that they found ready-made on their arrival. The question of hard numbers is a tricky one. We can get good numbers on African slavery in the Americas because it was all legal and above board. Ships paid taxes on arrival, and sales were clearly and shamelessly documented. With Indian slavery, it was different. Since it was illegal, it went under a variety of guises and euphemisms. The slaves might be listed as servants, or debtors, or criminals, or even godchildren. Women and children continued to be in high demand through the period, and declaring yourself as a godparent of a child in need was a kind and Christian way of absolving any qualms of conscience about having purchased said child at an auction in the main square. So adding all of this up is hard, but historian Andres Resendes has estimated that anywhere between 2.5 million and 5 million Indians lived as slaves between 1492 and 1900. He also makes a compelling case that although everyone knows that the native populations were devastated by disease, disease alone would not have caused the collapse of so many native cultures. He points to the Black Death in Europe, which was also incredibly devastating. But after a few generations, the population bounced back, and no one would say that the Black Death had destroyed European civilization. Left to themselves, Oesendus argues, the Indians would also have bounced back after a few generations. But they weren't left to themselves, and it was the combination of disease plus slavery that wiped so many tribes out of existence. My major source today was The Other Slavery, The Uncovered Story of Indian Enslavement in America by Andres Resendez. There's a link on the website at herhalfofhistory.com. Please do follow me on the website or Facebook or Twitter. Assuming I get my act together, there are other indigenous American slaves that I am covering there in small written snippets. As always, reviews and ratings are welcome, and please come back next week for Rosa, a Brazilian slave turned mystic. Thanks. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world. From forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? 
I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.